and welcome to Writing the Coast, the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. I'm your host, Megan Cole. On Writing the Coast, I interview the authors and illustrators whose books have been shortlisted for the annual prizes. Now, if you're not familiar with the podcast, I want to take a minute and encourage you to go back. We have so many great conversations with past nominees available through your podcast app or online. We've chatted with folks like Leisha Rosno, Shazia Hafiz Ramji, Kathy Page, Gerald McLeod, and more. And if you're new to the prizes and aren't sure who is on the shortlist, take a minute and go over to our website. You'll find all the information there, and the books that these amazing people have created should definitely be on your reading list. One of the books that you should be reading is Yasuko Tan's Mistakes to Run With. I read this memoir last year when it first came out. I fell in love with Yasuko's writing, her approach to structure, and the honesty with which she told her story. Mistakes to Run With is Yasuko's first work of nonfiction, even though she admits life often influences her art. Yasuko starts our conversation off with a reading from her breathtaking memoir. He used to say that we'd be together forever. Unless I kill you or you kill me, and baby, believe me, I would do time for killing you. I thought this was romantic. Some months earlier, while living at the Robson Strauss, I'd been working day shift. One afternoon at home, I was wearing a sweater from Holt Renfrew, given to me by a trick. I didn't like its beige color, but I was fond of cashmere, and I liked that it had the label of an expensive store sewn into the collar. I don't remember what started the fight, but suddenly I was hanging by my neck from the living room wall, Avery's hands around my throat, and what I remember most isn't feeling hurt or hate or even a change in the idea that Avery loved me, but simple amazement, a bone-deep surprise to discover that people did this to each other. My cigarette burned uselessly in my hand as I hung by my neck in Avery's grasp, the smoke spiraling. I could have butted it out in his eye. At the time, it didn't occur to me. Instead of burning Avery, the cigarette's cherry singed my sleeve. It wouldn't be until the next day that I'd noticed the hole in the sweater, the one that had somehow made me feel respectable. I sat down in an armchair to stitch the edges back together with the wrong colored thread. It was easy to split myself in two, shadow and self. I'd been doing it my whole life. Being hurt at the hands of a loved one was not an option for my alter ego. When assaulted, she had a knack for rationalizing away her own victimhood. While I may have curled into a ball and cried, my alter ego did not, simply by refusing to look at her injuries. The denial of her own suffering helped her support the illusion that she was in control. Love, she thought. Love the sinner, hate the sin. The Hamar people, she told me, said that women with scars were as strong as lions. They practiced ritual beatings, and the bonding that occurred between aggressor and victim, the scars left behind, served as proof that someone cared enough to hurt you. Sometimes the beatings came every month. In the early days, my foreknowledge helped me accept them. Knowing they were about to happen, their predictability like the rising sun, somehow freed me from my fear of them of the results. Avery hated the thing inside him as much as I did. What made him explode, he said, controlled him, not the other way around. 
telling myself that Avery had a mental illness, true or not, meant that instead of anger or self-pity, I felt compassion for him. I know I'm bad, but I want to change. I want to be good, good the way you're good. I'd do anything to help him. He needed me, anything it took. I could see his pain. I'm afraid, he confessed. I don't want to be a failure in your eyes. He cried in my arms, and I couldn't have felt more tenderness toward anyone. You are good, I repeated, stroking his hair. He needed my love, my understanding, my faith in him. You are good. And despite his violent tendencies, Avery did make me feel loved. He made me feel special by telling me stories of his abusive childhood and broken home, secrets he'd never told anyone. He was not a closed man or a private man or even a reserved man. Still, no one knew his secrets or no one but me. Whatever else my pimp was, his rules of engagement were clear. He awarded me attention and affection. For the first time in my life, I was the axis around whom someone's life revolved. My old habits, the counting, the ritual touching, fell away in his presence. In return... All I had to do was pay him. Thank you. Why? Why did you choose that? Why did you choose that piece to start the podcast with? I chose that piece because I think it's emblematic of one of the things that I try to do in my work, or really like when somebody else does in their work, where they try to blur the lines a little bit between what we consider good and what we consider bad. Yeah, and you do that so well in the book, and I think the the character of Avery and your relationship with him, it really does kind of expose those gray areas. It's not It's not just one or the other. There's so much in between. Right, and I think, you know, if anything, um, maybe it'll shed some light on situations that uh, – women who are in those relationships will find their themselves in and then you know you have all of this judgment from people who are looking at it from the outside thinking well you know oh my god he's horrible just leave just leave you know and it seems so easy but when you're on the inside of it it's absolutely not at all you know it's such a complicated thing mm-hmm. and even the way you write about sex work too i think that that shows that the the diversity and the complexity of that lifestyle, that work, that sometimes we don't really talk about as much, or we're starting to talk about it more, thankfully. But, you know, it was, again, good, bad, and nothing in between. Yeah. Yeah. So how did uh, this book start for you? Because I know you've written um, fiction before. So how did uh, Mistakes to Run With start? Um, Well, it had started as a seed in my mind a long, long time ago when I first got pregnant uh, with my oldest, um, who's now more than 20, so (laughs) the thought lived in there for a while, Um, you know, I began to write this sort of series of dialogues in my head almost about, you know, if these questions ever came up in the future, if my child was to, you know, express curiosity about my past or anything, like, how am I going to approach this, right? You know, what do I say? What is the story about that that I'm going to tell myself at this point? Because it, in a way, you know, all memory is a fiction, right? We mm-hmm. select certain details and filter out others to create a story that is acceptable to us just based on certain facts and the omission of others. 
So that's kind of how the whole thing started. But in a practical sense, it was the freedom, I think, that was given to me by both my publisher and my agent who, you know, they, they didn't want me to come out of the gate, I think, with this kind of work so that I, you know, would accidentally get labeled a certain kind of writer. Was the creative process different for you with this book compared to your fiction? Yeah, fiction is so much easier because, <laughs> in a way, because you can just make stuff up when the plot's not working. <laughs> um, the other problematic thing, of course, is that you're uh, relying on memory, um, so you have to accept that your perceptions of events have changed over time and, you know, somehow try and make that a part of the narrative as well. It's always hard if you have a retrospective narrator to create that sense of immediacy, whether, like, that's on the page or even just for yourself, right? Like, trying to get access to some of these memories is like trying to break into a lockbox. And there were just huge blank spaces. So, mm -hmm. you know, you, you have to kind of work around those as well somehow. Yeah. Did having, like, that background in fiction and, you know, knowing those kind of literary devices, was that a, a useful tool for you to be able to kind of play with the truth and to play with nonfiction in a more fictional kind of way? Did that Did you find that helpful? No, actually, because it felt like, because this was going to be called nonfiction, that I really had this bond with the writer. You know, there's a trust there that this is the truth. And so, yeah, you, you can't just kind of, oh, well, I don't remember that part, so let me make up something that might have happened. Like, that felt to me like a betrayal then. So yeah. I had to be able to somehow connect the dots between those things that I remembered without trying to include things that I didn't. And I've told this story before, but how it really helped was I have a friend who writes um, nonfiction. He writes beautiful memoirs, and uh, his name is Andrew Struthers. And I was explaining to him this difficulty about how, you know, I'll remember this thing, and, you know, it stands next to all these other things I've forgotten. And he said it's perfectly fine to just start with that image because there's a reason that your brain remembers it at the expense of other things, right? So just go with that. And then so I would kind of write a circle around everything that I remembered about that and then do the same thing with something else and something else. And you just kind of hope, okay, at the end I am going to be able to stitch this together uh, with some type of a structure if it's not too arbitrary. But, you know, we chose chronological because that seemed to make the most sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, too, writing that way, you know, acknowledging that we don't have per perfect memories kind of helps that bond with the reader, too, because there's likely the reader is thinking back on their life going, I wouldn't remember everything either. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, and I and I kind of tried to nod at that right in the beginning because um you know there was this event that happened uh close to where I grew up where um a guy crashed his car and blew himself up with some dynamite that he had and injured one of the police officers who was there. The thing is, in my memory, I remember so vividly his girlfriend being held back by paramedics and crying for him not to do it. But in reality when I read the newspaper article afterwards in fact she didn't arrive until after his body was under a tarp so you know it, it it's just one of those things like my my memory of the mascara running down her cheeks and everything you know is is so vivid but yet at the same time she couldn't have been there pre-explosion right so yeah. 
It's so interesting, those explorations of the truth in our memory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Kelly S. Thompson, uh, who wrote Girls Need Not Apologize, she wanted me to ask you um, how you navigated what you wanted to share and what to hold back. That was pretty easy because with the exception of one person whom I asked, uh, and this is my, my oldest kid, I was like, you know, can I talk about this? And they said no, and that, you know, so only out of respect for my oldest, I chose not to write about certain things that had happened in the family, but I kind of figured, I don't know, everybody else was fair game. And I couldn't, you know, it sounds somewhat mercenary, but at the same time, like I felt if I let the opinions of too many people get in the way, then it would it would never be written. And so, you know, I decided to go ahead without telling anybody uh, who was in it, what was going to be in it. Did you hear from any of them after it was published? Yeah, but it was all really positive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I think we build it up in our heads what, what people are going to say. Yeah. I mean, my biggest worry was my parents. You know, we we still see each other once every couple of weeks. Well, now it's a bit different. We visit each other through, you know, glass front door. But, um, yeah. It's, uh, if anything, you know, it's made us closer rather than pushed us apart. Yeah. Did your kids read it? I think the oldest has read it. I'm not sure if the youngest has, although I know it was in their school library because one of their friends pulled it from the shelf. <laughs> <laughs> so, that but must it, have been his mom um, a celebrity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, as she never ceases to remind me, <laughs> you are not Beyonce. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that process of of probing your memories. I know you were able to access some records as as a young person, but mm-hmm. did you have you know records to go back on? To kind I of did. Flesh out those? Okay, and that was really helpful too. Um, not so much to flesh out things, um, so much as to help me with the chronology of events because I think a lot of people's memory it tends to work thematically and so you lump like events together and so it's really helpful to be able to look back in the journal and go oh okay no this happened here and here and you know I I have a really hard time with dates and things at the at the best of times I have forgotten my kids' birth dates on more than one occasion and actually thought, yeah, I better get that tattooed onto my arm so I can surreptitiously, you know, whenever I'm filling out school forms or something, just look down and go, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about the the labeling your book as brave and how you would label your book and whether you felt it was brave as you were writing it, after you published it. Um how you kind of see your work. I, you know, if it was me, I would feel really uncomfortable slapping any kind of adjective like that yeah. onto it. You know, I, re- I realize that it's mostly done um, to help booksellers maybe. Um, but, yeah, if, if it was just me, I mean, I think that's kind of presumptuous. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah. 
I know it's something that comes up in like in writing when you're workshopping writing that one of the things you're never supposed to say about someone's work is that it was brave. And so oh, I is that true? Really? <laughs> when I'm like reading book covers and it's like this is brave, it's like oh, that's the thing that we're <laughs> that oh, we not be no. each other's work. <laughs> now I'm going to be going into all the bookstores with a little pen, like just yeah, striking that the out. cover. <laughs> so I was reading, and I think I knew this before because I actually grew up in Victoria, and I oh, had yeah. uh, a couple of friends mention to me that um that you perform in punk bands and so you seem to have all these interesting creative outlets is there a way that you feel like you know one is the best way to express yourself for a certain thing or do they ever overlap do you find storytelling kind of merging between those um yeah, increasingly uh, these days because we're locked in and so I've been able to play more guitar than I usually do. And I think the rhythms from your music, you know, are then something that you can like carry around with you that inform your work. And, and hopefully, you know, some of the techniques that uh, I've learned with writing, I'll be able to apply to the lyrics of, of songs. So I, I really like the way that they kind of play off of each other like that. And there was something about, it was funny, I went back to try and find this one part that for some reason sticks out in my mind. And speaking of memory, I couldn't find it for the last <laughs> Um But there was parts in the writing that I almost felt like had this this dream-like quality to it, where it was really touched on those those memory moments where you can see the memory, you can almost touch it, but it's not quite there. Yeah. And I wondered... Um, in the writing of it, while it is chronological, was this, there this sense of kind of grasping hold of things and knitting them together somehow? Yeah, definitely. Because, okay, so, you know, you, you, you look at a journey that is being told with only, you know, these points along the way specifically described, then that's, depending on which ones you pick, is a whole other journey from, you know, another one that has the complete thing or that, you know, chooses different moments, right? Then it's a completely different story you're telling. So the, for sure, you know, the selection of which moments get included and which ones don't reflect on the entire story and what people would take away from it, right? And so structurally, one of the things that, hmm, you know, I, I hate to say that there's like essential rules in writing, but we do like, you know, this another bad word in workshop, you know, that sense of closure right? mm-hmm. <laughs> that, we're, that we're all craving. And, you know, you have rising action, you have falling action. We want to see, you know, that moment of redemption. It's kind of what, a, a, you know, a lot of us look for when we're reading because we want something that makes us feel good and hopeful at the end, right? So, yeah, adhering somewhat to that sort of hero's journey structure while at the same time trying thematically to indicate that that it's, you know, it's just a cycle starting again in a way. Like, there there never is, like, some grand arrival, you know? It just keeps on going because um, yeah. I you know at first thought okay having it end on stage in Toronto waiting to find out if I win a book prize or not like that sounds so Frank Capra I don't think <laughs> I want to do that you know yeah yeah, yeah. 
how did how did you come to terms with uh I, I write memoir as well and I always kind of you know I play with the idea of truth or not play with it, but I'm always kind of wrestling with truth and you know and whose truth is it and where you know where do I feel comfortable standing? How did you grapple with with your own sense of truth as you wrote? To recognize what it would be in the moment and then be able to let go of it because I think that if I had been trying to write what I thought was the truth, you know, again, that would be kind of almost as paralyzing as getting other people to vet the material, you know, to just know that, okay, this is the best truth I can come up with at this moment in time, being the person I am looking back and and that's okay. It's going to change. It'll be different next year. You know, you're continuously growing and, you know, it's, yeah. So, so to, to speak from a point of view, but realize that it is just a temporary point of view and it should be, you know, cause we should be trying to grow and change and better ourselves all the time. Right. And mm-hmm. yeah. So, you know, I mean, you could essentially write the same story for the rest of your life because you yourself are changing. So the story would be different every time you told it, you know. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, have you been writing lately? Have you is it been hard to write with all this going on? Um, no. No, not at all. The house is a little bit uh busier these days cuz I've got uh, more people kind of using this as their home base and that's great. It's love to, lovely to have a lively house. A bit harder to find the time to do it, but no, I mean my my life is. I mean, you're a writer, so you know it's you know we're we're kind of uh, recluses anyway. <laughs> so in in many ways, my life really hasn't changed that much. I'm I'm so lucky. Yeah, it's just you know when I step out and go to the grocery store, or something that I I kind of remember. But otherwise, the writing is just uh, yeah, same as always. <laughs> yeah. What are you working on right now? Oh, let's see. Um, I am working on maybe five different uh, little writing projects right now, Um, mainly short fiction, a couple of very short pieces that I've been working on for just the last five days, and that's part of a CBC Books thing that I'll be doing coming up. And uh, I just sent off a novella to my agent, and she's currently looking at that so fantastic fingers crossed yeah Yeah. the novella is a really underrated art form I think (laughs) yeah for sure Uh, would you ever write creative nonfiction again I feel like I do that anyway you know Uh, when we call fiction fiction I mean we're drawing on our own experiences most mostly like our emotional experiences of things so you know, in a way, it always is kind of creative nonfiction, right? You're you're slapping those emotions onto a character that you think can better dramatize the scene than than you can. Or, you know, it's somebody that, for whatever reason, is you know haunted your psyche, and you know, but you're bringing who you are to the work to figure out what makes them tick, because that's why they've been living in there. You're trying to figure out what that thing is, and you know, so it's always you know, like I, I really admire people who, you know, oh no, I just invent everything. It's all from my imagination. I just think like, wow, I don't, <laughs> I don't have that, you know. 
Thanks so much to Yasuko for being on the podcast, and thanks to you for listening and supporting Writing the Coast. If I haven't mentioned it before, and I know I have, it means a lot that you take time out to listen and share this podcast with others. If you're interested in finding out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, you can find us on the social medias. We are very active on Twitter. We are also on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget, as I've mentioned, to check out our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. Next time on the podcast, you'll hear my conversation with author Helen Nod, whose book, In My Own Moccasins, A Memoir of Resilience, is nominated for the Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize. But until we meet again here on the podcast airwaves, or maybe in person one day, who knows, I hope that you enjoy some great books, and don't forget to share this podcast with book lovers you know. <laughs>